Join me in prayer again here as we get started. Father, the Christmas season comes every year, and Lord, we can lose a sense of the wonder and the incredible nature of God becoming man. You, Lord, in the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus coming to earth, taking on our humanity, and and the cause and the purpose for that, Lord, we lose sight of that in all that goes on in the season. And so I, I pray this morning as we look together in your word that the depth and breadth of your love for us witnessed in the incarnation and in, Lord, your plan to redeem a people for your name and a, a bride for your son that would be an adequate and appropriate a person to rule and reign throughout eternity, Lord, that we would see all that in Christmas again this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. In the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, God spoke and the heavens and earth leapt into existence and there's light and there's dark and there's heavens and there's seas and there's the earth. And God's the authority there and so you see Him naming those elements and Really, days one through five, they're important. They lay the foundation for everything to come. But if creation's story stopped at day five, it would have missed the point of everything because God's going towards day six. Because the height of His creation is not the elements, it's not the earth, it's not the sea. It's man on the earth there in the garden where He wanted Him to be. So we see the animals and we get Adam there on day six. And you remember how... It's Adam by himself. And God causes the animals that have been created to come through before him. And Adam sees that for every male, there's a female. And Adam names the animals because God is showing, he's indicating by naming, that Adam is the Lord. He's the sovereign. He's God's co- or sub-ruler on the earth over those animals. So Adam names them. He's exercising his lordship. He's a small, if you will, ruler to God's supreme ruler. But that's his role. So he names the animals. And he also sees as he does that, there's a male and a female. There's a male and a female. And you remember in the creation account of everything it says, God says it was good. But then of Adam, by himself, God says singularly in the creation account, it was not good that the man was alone. So it says God causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. While Adam is asleep, God removes a rib from his side. Remember, Adam's made of the dust of the ground. But that one that God will make for Adam, that female co-ruler to be with him, is not made directly from the dust, but actually comes from Adam's side, from the rib. And from Adam's rib, God fashions the woman. The woman, she shall be called woman because she's from man. That's direct out of the Hebrew. If you say it's ish and isha. She's like me. You can imagine Adam wakes up from this anesthesia. His surgery, God's performed on him. And he sees Eve and he gets it, doesn't he? That she's like me, but she's different. And I can see that just as every other animal life that's passed before me as a male and female, now I do too. And I'm sure this is one of those cases of love at first sight. 
because he has a sense of his need. And now he sees Eve. And I'm sure she was physically beautiful. And you know, if you think of femininity, you know, I was going to start with a joke about women and what does a guy get for a rib versus an arm and a leg, but I decided not to. And just go straight to the fact that if God saves the best for last, then really Eve was the last, wasn't she? So not just Adam, but Eve was actually the last act of God's creation. Not Adam singularly, but Eve was. You know, to most guys, Andrew, I say, we married up. Most of us married up. So Eve's the crowning achievement of God's creation. And I'm sure Adam looks at her and he loves her. And what's not to love physically attractive? She's the fountainhead, really, of all the feminine graces. Everything she should be, nothing she shouldn't be. And man, life is good. Big picture, this is the first romance story, isn't it? He's handsome, he's masculine, he's all masculinity is meant to be. She's beautiful, she's everything femininity is meant to be. And if the story ended here, we'd say they lived happily ever after, wouldn't we? And it, it wasn't quite ever after, was it? We know that. So, that's a great love story, right? God puts them on the earth. They're sub-co-rulers with God of His creation. Adam now has a co-ruler to, to rule, to help him with this lordship over the earth. So far, so good. Great love story. But as I read this, I start asking myself, what about the love stories where the guy falls in love with a homely woman? With an unattractive woman? Where, where are those stories? Or take it one better, where are the, the love stories in which the guy falls in love with a woman who's not just homely, she's ugly, we would say, and she's faithless, and she's a liar, and you can't trust her? Where are those love stories? Because that would be a good love story, right? You guys look uncomfortable. Now see, that's actually, uh, that's our story, isn't it? That's our story. Now you see, if you don't agree with me, if you've got a study sheet or your Bible, we're going to be in Ezekiel 16. Now just hang in there with me on our Christmas theme here, because we're going to get there, okay? But it's a little roundabout way. So this is Ezekiel 16. This is God's version of a love story. God's version of a love story, Ezekiel 16. It's a little different because the one God's going to set His love upon, she's an infant. And you'll see where it goes from there. God's love story. Now, let me tell you too, when this is written, Ezekiel is a captive of the Babylonians in Babylon. The nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, they'd been taken captive by the Assyrians long before. And the southern tribes, Judah, they're about ready in totality to go into captivity into Babylon. And when God speaks to them here, He's talking about their unfaithfulness and His faithfulness. And He's sort of explaining why they have come to the point that they're at. That they're about ready as a nation to go into captivity also. And so he frames this description talking about the city of Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom of Judah. And he uses that city as a metaphor for the nation. The covenant people that he had set his love on and chosen for himself. And that's what we get here. So Ezekiel 16, I think I'm starting at verse 2 here. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth 
are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And please understand, God is intentionally insulting the Jews when He says all this. Your origin is pagan. And your parents, you're a mongrel race from pagan ancestors. That's your origin. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. You were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Let me just paint this picture a little bit more. You know when we think of babies and birth, especially the ladies, we coo over the cute babies. This is not what God is saying here. This is not a cute baby. So you know if you've seen a real birth, I'm sorry. Babies at birth, to me, they're not cute. So what do they come out looking like? They're smashed, right? Their heads are smashed. Their faces pushed in. And you know what else? They're covered with that stuff on their skin. Sometimes it has almost a blue-green look. They're gooey. I I don't want to pick one of those babies up. They're gooey. And they're covered with blood, aren't they? This is not, God wants to paint a picture. This is not supposed to be cute. They're, They're a bloody mess. And they got this cord sticking out where their belly button should be. What's with that? So the picture God says of Jerusalem, his covenant people, is your origin. You're like a baby at birth that's gooey and bloody and unclean. Not only that, you're a mongrel child because your parents are from these disparate pagan groups. And not only that, but when you were born, you were so ugly that your parents threw you out in the field to die. You weren't wanted by anyone. You weren't desirable. You were unclean and gooey and yucky. That's your birth, God says, of Jerusalem, His covenant people. This is supposed to be gross, okay? When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. If God says something twice, you know what? You can count on it. It's going to happen. This little baby left out to die is going to live. And if you remember in the ancient world, not much different in some ways than in parts of the world today. If I want a boy and I get a girl, I just put her out. She's just like trash. I just expose her. I don't want her. Or if I wanted a girl and I get a boy, I just put them out. I just expose them to the elements. That was common in the ancient world. That's what God says it happened to this little gal when he came along and said to the one no one else wanted, this unclean, gooey mess. God says, live, because otherwise she wouldn't have. A baby exposed to the elements at birth is not going to live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. She's fully mature now. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. You might think of the story of Ruth and Boaz here. When Boaz takes his garment and covers Ruth, 
that was a display saying, I am going to cover you. I am going to become your protector and your husband. And that's what God says here to Jerusalem. I came along and I put my covering over you. And I said, you're mine and I'm going to oversee you and I'll protect you and you'll be my spouse as it were. I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth, shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I mean, they went to the mall and they shopped like there was no tomorrow. She's dressed up as well as it gets. I put a ring on your nose, earrings in your ears, beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So that, God says, that's Jerusalem's story. That's the story of His covenant people seen through the lens of the capital of the southern tribes of Judah. So the picture there is, you were like that unwashed infant. There was nothing desirable in you when I came along and told you to live. There was nothing about you that elicited my love. It's not that you were desirable or lovable. It's that I chose to set my love on you, and I chose to covenant with you and make you my own. God the High King, I'm going to make you my queen. You're going to be my co-ruler with me. But it's not because you have this perfect lineage. It's not because I came up and saw this beautiful woman that deserved to be my queen. It's in spite of all that. I chose to make you my own. No beauty, no grace, no cooking abilities, no great personality. God loved her at her worst when she could not love Him back. When she could not love Him back, too young to know to do so, God had set His love on her. Not only that, it's important if you have time later, you can read the rest of Ezekiel 16. You see exactly the same imagery, by the way, in the book of Hosea. But in Ezekiel 16, God goes on to describe the adulteries, depending on which translation you read, that his wife is a whore. She's a prostitute. Not only that, but instead of men paying her for her sexual favors, she pays them. God says you're worse than the worst. That's in Ezekiel 16. That's the story of Hosea and Gomer also, isn't it? God tells His man to go and love a woman who's a prostitute. And if not at their marriage, she is soon afterwards. His second and third children appear not to be His own. But what do you see in that book? Hosea goes out and he redeems Gomer from the slave market. He buys her back. He redeems her. Despite all her unfaithfulness, all her uncleanness, God doesn't give up. He buys her back and restores her. And in Ezekiel 16, God in one breath talks about breaking the covenant. But as you go to the end of the chapter, you see God saying, I'm going to make an eternal covenant with you. I just want us to be on the same page that as bad as the start was, 
it got worse. Because no matter how much love God lavished on Jerusalem and Judah, His covenant people, their faithlessness only grew over time. And God still says, I'm going to make an eternal covenant with you. So we need to get the picture that God says, when there was nothing to love, and because I'm omniscient and I'm eternal, I knew every wicked act you would perform against me, I still chose to set my love on you. That's Ezekiel 16. That's the story God uses to talk to Judah about why they're going into captivity. Now, listen to another description of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the lens whereby God's talking about His covenant people there in Ezekiel. So it's not just the city. It's the nation. It's the people in it. Listen to another description of Jerusalem. Now we're going to skip forward from Ezekiel to the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19 and 21, I'll start in 19, you see the same place, sort of, brought up again. Here in Revelation 19, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord because our Lord God the Almighty has begun to reign. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory for this reason. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has prepared herself, she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. Skipping down to Revelation 21, this doesn't describe the bride here, but 21 does. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. One of the seven angels spoke with me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a very precious stone, like a jasper stone. Probably the thought here of a bright red color. Bright as crystal. Think like a diamond, this bright crystal quality. So here's a new Jerusalem the bride of Christ, fine linen, bright and pure, like a bride all dressed up for the groom, holy, glorious, shining like the radiance of diamonds and gems, beautiful both on the inside and the outside. So, Jerusalem in Ezekiel, Jerusalem in Revelation, what's the difference between the two? How does the unclean baby, grown-up prostitute of Ezekiel, old Jerusalem, how does that Jerusalem become the new Jerusalem of Revelation 19? The bride of Christ that, like Eve to Adam, is set to rule and reign with Jesus over the new heavens and the new earth forever. What's the difference between the two? It's the incarnational love of God, isn't it, that came down to earth to redeem a people for Himself. That's the difference. We need to be really clear that it's not Jerusalem that changes on its own. And it's not we that change on our own. It's God's act sovereignly to speak to a people and say, live, because I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to make you my own in spite of what I'm starting with. And in spite of what I know you'll do in the future. It's as if 
Think back to the creation account. It's as if God the Father from heaven looks down on our poor estate and says, Son, I want you to go down and I want you to redeem a people that will be an adequate fit for you. Like you, but different. That will be adequate to rule and reign the new heavens and the new earth. And so if you think about this, Jesus comes down to the earth in our humanity in the Incarnation. Remember, Adam's made of the dust of the earth. He's a real man, flesh and blood. And Jesus comes down in the Incarnation and He shares our flesh and blood, our full humanity. Except our sin, He's just like us. Hungry, thirsty, whatever. A man of the earth. He's the descendant of the first Adam. But He's now here as a second Adam. And if you push that further, you see that God lays him down in sleep, just like Adam, doesn't he? Remember, to get the rib, God puts Adam to sleep. He wounds his side, and he takes out the rib. You remember on the cross, this is interesting, when it says the soldier doesn't have to pierce Jesus' side, does he? But he does. They already know he's dead. So when he pierces his side, do you remember what John's Gospel says happens? Blood and water flow out. What do you get at the birth of a baby? Blood and water. Blood and fluid. And Jesus is laid down in the sleep of death. And it's from His wounded side that His bride is born and fashioned. Drawn out of His side. You and I, as those redeemed in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, You and I are as much a piece of Christ, a part of Christ, as Eve was a part of Adam. No less fully. So when Adam saw Eve, he says, you remember, she's bone of my bone. And she's flesh of my flesh. Why? Because she's taken from me. She is a part of me. Believers in Christ are part of Christ. Our genesis is from Him. We are taken out of His side. It's a new birth born of blood and water. It's the same imagery. And that's how Jesus gets His church, that new bride, that new heavenly Jerusalem. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5. It's a well-known passage for married couples because it's the standard by which husbands are told to love their wives. Christ is the model. And Paul says there, Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the Word. He did this to present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, holy and blameless. Think back to the language of Ezekiel. I washed you. I clothed you. The finest linens and silks. I made you beautiful royalty. So again, what was it that transformed a prostitute into a glorious bride? It was the same thing. It was the love born of the incarnation in which God sent His Son here to join us in our humanity and redeem us back to Himself. Now, we're part of this same love story. The handsome man who chooses to set his love and marry the homely faithless woman. That really is our story. It is a story 
born not of our beauty and grace, but of our sin and our shame. So the incarnation shows the great depth to which God would go to redeem us back to Himself. Nothing in us to draw God's love out. Think gross. That's the moral picture. Now, when you hear me say this, by the way, we're still in our fallen nature. We're made in the image of God. And we have a glory because of that. And in saying this, I'm not saying anything that we shouldn't love each other or that we look down on each other. It's just that because of God's holiness, our moral fallenness does not allow Him to associate with us. We talked about this last week. So that's the thought here, that morally there was nothing in us to draw out God's love. It wasn't that God looked down and saw us and said, man, they are lovable. Or they are that cute baby. No, God looks down and sees us in our moral repugnance. That's the state in which He says, I'm going to set My love on them anyway. And we need to get this. We were enemies of God and offensive to His holiness, and He chose to love us in the Incarnation anyway. Now, if we can get a hold of this, it changes everything about how we live life. And when you're thinking of Christmas or God's love for you later, just think of Ezekiel 16. Um, if we know that God loved us at our worst, eyes fully open, knowing every faithless act we would do in the future, if we know that, then it changes the way we see ourselves and it changes the way we live. If God has loved me at my worst and He knows all things, you know what? I can never disappoint Him. I can never disappoint God. Because disappointment is born of expectation. Guys, God has no expectation on me that won't be fulfilled and realized because He knows all things. We sort of tend to think at conversion, I become a Christian, now I'm supposed to be a good person. I think for most of us that means a religious person. A good person. And now I won't sin anymore. And so if we sin, we get confused. And we, we feel bad. There should be conviction for our sins, certainly, and a desire for repentance and a change of heart, certainly. A renewed mind, absolutely. But we get disappointed and, and sometimes we wonder, have I sinned past the point that God will love me anymore? Have I sinned past the point of belonging to God, being His child? Well, see, if we get this, you can't get there. God loved us and chose to love us at our worst. And He knows all things, so He knows about our future faithlessness. He knows every future sin you and I will ever commit. There's nothing He doesn't know. He can never be disappointed. God can never say, I made a mistake with Mike. I thought He'd turn out okay, but look at Him. Can't happen. It's impossible. If we understand God loved us at our worst, we can never disappoint Him. He loved us in spite of ourselves. And He really, really loves us. And it's not... You remember when David's son Absalom comes back and David says, he can come back to the city, but he can't come see my face. It's a sort of quasi-forgiveness. You're sort of okay, but not really. So when God looks down at our immorality and our sinfulness and our yuckiness, he says, I'm going to make you my bride. He doesn't say, I'll bring you back a little bit and then stiff arm you. 
He says, you're going to be in the closest possible relationship with me. That's the love of the incarnation. That's the love God sent in Jesus to the earth to buy us back. And if we can get a hold of this, it revolutionizes our outlook on life and on ourselves and on others. You know, most of us are fearful Christians and we're pandering to others because we think like this, if I can impress you and get you to think highly of me, then I can think highly of me too. You know, in the, in the garden after the fall, Adam and Eve know something's wrong, don't they? And so when God calls their name, they hide because there's now shame. There was no shame before. And they grab those fig leaves, right? Because now they know, you know, I'm not okay anymore. And I want to put something between me and you so you can't see me as I really am. Well, see, God sees us as we really are. Fully, totally, this moment and all moments to come. And God says, I love you anyway. All your sins, past, present, and future, all in Christ when He goes into that sleep of death. All in Christ. You can't sin your way out of the love of God. You can't fail your way out of the love of God. You can't live or die your way out of the love of God. This is mind-blowing too. Do you remember the refrain in Song of Songs? I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. It goes both ways. Well, see, because we're born out of Jesus' side, just like Eve was, we are bone of His bone, we are flesh of His flesh. Not only are we Jesus's, but Jesus is ours. He's ours. You know, if Jesus tried to stiff arm us, we'd have to say, sorry, you're mine. Jesus says, she's mine. The bride of Christ, we're His. But it's reciprocal. He's ours. He belongs to us. We're part of Him. You can't quit being part of Him. You can't get there. That's the fruit of incarnational love. Paul says it this way in Titus 3, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, various passions, pleasures, malice, envy, hateful, detesting one another. Sounds a lot like that old Jerusalem. Ezekiel. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, sounds like the incarnation, He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Spirit. That's what God does for us and in us. Just as He said to Jerusalem and Ezekiel, I washed you. I cleaned you up. I gave you those finest of clothing and garments. I dressed you as royalty. That's exactly what Paul says God did for us in Christ. He's cleansed us. He's washed us. He's dressed us in those finest of linens. We're no longer like mongrel, unclean old Jerusalem. Our future is the holiness and the glory of the new Jerusalem. The epitome of God's future kingdom and those in it. If you're a Christian, that's your future. It's absolutely guaranteed. It's as good as done. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, you are already, past tense, glorified. We don't see it here and now. It hasn't occurred in time. But it's as good as done. Why? Because Christ is glorified. And Christ is in me and I'm in Him. I'm glorified. It's as good as done. Paul says it this way in Romans 5. 
while we were still weak, think of that whimpering, unwashed infant in the field. When we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. Ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's when He did it. He chose to set His love on us. Nothing in us to draw it out. Knowing every faithless future act we would ever do, every faithless word, every sin of omission or commission, whatever it is, you can't get around this. God knew what He was doing. We're His problem. He's at work in us. He's regenerated us. He's washed us. He's cleansed us. And we will be that glorious bride of Christ in the future. That is our future. Absolutely guaranteed. You can count on it. Now, if I know God has loved me at my worst, if I know there's no future sin I commit that surprises Him, if I know I can never disappoint Him, then I have the approval all of us need. And this is the problem with uh, religion and with uh, most Christians, myself included. See, when we get saved, we, we sort of brainwash ourselves that we weren't that bad when we got saved. And so somehow we can do some remodeling on our own and, and bring ourselves up to snuff. But if we understand, no, you were really, really broken. You were really unclean. There really was nothing about you that elicited my love. And I know all your future unfaithfulness, then, then all my security, all my acceptance is totally and squarely on God's love for me. Now, we it may impress each other occasionally, who knows, on a good day maybe, you know, one out of seven, I don't know. But you know, most of the time we're not impressive to each other, are we? And so if we're looking to each other for that affirmation, for that covering that's adequate to take away those fig leaves, where we can come out in the open and say, this is who I really am. See, that's what should happen in the church. You remember, I love it in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, where Paul lives, gives that list of sins, you know, adulterers and fornicators and idolaters, etc. And then he says, and such were some of you. That's you, Paul says. Well, that's us. So if we get it that God loves us, what the incarnational love of God for us says everything, then I can quit trying to impress myself. And I can quit trying to impress you. And I can feel okay about who I am and I can come out in the open and say, these are the ways in which I'm still broken and not who and what I should be. Because God knows all that already. And I have His approval anyway. And if I have God's approval, I don't need your approval. And I don't even need approval from myself. Sometimes the greatest idol for us is the image of ourself we have in our own mind. We want to uphold that image for ourselves and we want to uphold that image before others. This is what I'm like. Got it all together. How are you doing? Fine. No. You know, not really. Life's falling apart. But if we get this, then we're safe. And it's safe to come out. And it's safe to be who we are. With each other. And for each other. It changes everything if we get that God in the Incarnation said, I'm going to love them anyway. And they're going to go from that mongrel race to this glorious bride. That is the love of God in the Incarnation.
This love reminds us not to lose heart when we sin. And guys, Christians, we sin with the best of them. And I don't say this to anybody to give us license. We just do. You know, uh, I was struck. I was watching the news uh, several months ago and they're showing the pictures of men who have been picked up for uh, solicitation of prostitution. And, you know, there's a face there that I recognize because I went to church with him. We sin with the best of them. I mean, just look around. Just We sin with the best of them. So this is not licensed to sin. But God knows all that anyway. He knew all that when He saved us and set His love on us. None of that changes. But also, this incarnational love that says, we're going to go from old mongrel Jerusalem to new holy, bright, glorious Jerusalem, that also gives me hope. Not only do I know that God loves me even when I sin, but I know where I'm going. I know what my future is. I know what my end is. So I can aspire highly because I know God is, God is going to raise us up to this incredible, high, unbelievable really, of glory and majesty and beauty. And we as Christians, we will co-rule and reign with Jesus Christ over the new heavens and new earth, just as Eve was meant to be that co-ruler with Adam on the earth God had prepared for them. That's our future role. If I know that, it helps me to aspire highly. I don't need to keep my motives low or my goals low. I want to aspire highly because I know what my future in Christ is. To holiness and godliness. I want to reflect some more of His glory because I know where I'm going. I know it's going to happen anyway. And I want to be part of that process also. If we find ourselves rules keepers, be clear on this. When we're trying to cover up our sin and when we're trying to keep rules, we're just religious. We're just like Israel. We're just going to go to an, into another kind of captivity. Uh, keeping rules doesn't help anybody. God wants us to know His grace and His love are so great that He loved us in spite of ourselves. Rules keeping says we can do this on our own and we can't. God regenerated us and He poured His Spirit out on us because that's what we needed. Couldn't do without it. Old, unwashed, unclean Jerusalem transformed into the glorious bride of the new Jerusalem is the fruit of incarnational love. And our transformation from old, unwashed, sinful selves into glorious, holy, radiant members of Christ's body is the fruit not of our own efforts or merits, but to that same incarnational love. So when we think about Christmas this year and maybe next, think of Ezekiel 16 and that unwashed, undesired baby. That's what we were like when God sent Jesus into the earth to become one of us, to bear our sins, to wound His side, to flow out blood and water, to give birth to a new race a new Eve, a new spotless bride of Christ. That's our past and that's our future. Father, help us not to denigrate You or the love of Your Son for us by thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Lord God, help us to honor You more fully by at least, Lord, attempting to comprehend the unfathomable riches of Your grace and the love whereby You sent Jesus, the second man, the second Adam, 
to buy himself back, to redeem back, like Hosea did Gomer, a bride that would be like him but different, who would rule and reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And Lord, let those facts, let our own sinful history and the glorious future to which we're called, Lord, let that contrast remind us of the love of God that while we were yet sinners, You loved us. Knowing all our future sins, Lord, You loved us. Lord Jesus, thanks for Your incarnation. Thanks for Your death and resurrection to buy us back and produce a bride to rule and reign with You forever. Lord, as we come into Your presence, help us to give full voice to Your goodness and grace as we worship and praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.